You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Federal Premium Ammunition and their new Centerfire Rifle Ammunition Terminal Ascent. Now, the Terminal Ascent has a slipstream polymer tip that helps flatten trajectories and initiates low-velocity expansion at longer ranges. The Terminal Ascent gives you match-grade long-range accuracy in a bonded hunting bullet, and it comes in a variety of cartridges, including the 6.5 Creedmoor, the 280 Ackley Improved, the 28 Nosler, the 7mm Remington Mag 30-06, and the 300 Win Mag. If you want to find more information about the Terminal Ascent, visit federalpremium.com, and while you're there, check out It's Federal Season, the official podcast of Federal Ammunition. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith. And Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. All right, welcome back to Land and Legacy Podcast, guys. Feels good to be back. Um, we're here chatting with uh, return special guest Casey Morgan. Good to be here, Casey. It's been a while. Um, you were on a podcast way back when. Uh, we talked about blood trailing and different broadheads and blood trailing with a dog. Um, you've been on one talking. I don't even remember what the other one was, but um, been a little while. And so today. We're going to discuss a long list of tips, tricks, tips and tricks to hunting and property architecture. Um, so a little background, uh, we had Greg Glessinger on multiple times this past fall. Um, we discussed his 232, is that correct? It was 233. 233 yeah. and change buck. Um, as well as the 239 and change, the 202 and change, and the 193 and change, which there's been several other really nice deer in the mix of all that, but yes. that's over the course of the last four years for people that haven't heard uh, that story or know what's going on. But, Greg, it's, you guys are just doing things that I haven't seen a lot of people do over the course of the whitetail world and, and films and things, so... Um, you, a lot of listeners will probably be aware of you guys with your association with Drury Outdoors. And so, um, and we've got the great honor to get to work with you guys on proving the habitat and proving, uh, working with you guys on trying to promote 
native vegetation, native habitats, find and fill in voids or lowering stress levels that are occurring in this part of the world. Um, and so uh, it's it's fun to work with you guys because I feel like Matt and I bring so much in the native vegetation where a lot of people overlook and you guys are really keyed in on the things we're fixing to talk about. Definitely. And I think that, you know, you just touched on it, which is a huge part of being a successful hunter in general is figure out where you don't have knowledge, where you're lacking, where you're not very good. Yep. And then try to gain as much information as you can on that. I think that, you know, too many people are locked in on their philosophy behind what they do and they're they're neglecting a lot of knowledge information and different strategies that are out there because they're just closed-minded as to yeah <laughs> what can be learned well what, what is fun in this relationship as we move forward is like we keep matt and i we focus on things that you guys don't really nerd out on and sure. you guys nerd out on things that we don't nerd out on <laughs> yeah. and so like matt and i like we'll see a property and we'll be like, oh, my goodness, there's a great base of natives here. We're going to do this, this, this. So you guys have way more food during the summer as well as um, we're going to do this and have tons of woody browse available during the winter. Um, and you guys are like, oh, we're going to lay this food plot out just like this in correlation with where those bedding areas need to be. And boom, you kind of put it all in a bag and shake it up and say, poof. Here's what the last four years look like, Poof. and it's been pretty incredible. Poof! Here's a 230 plus inch deer. <laughs> yeah, as easy as that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which uh, I think is a testament to what's been occurring. Is like we rack our brains on, you know, learning new plants or learning things that are missing in this huge puzzle, and you guys are doing the same thing with the hunting strategy and tips and tricks and things that uh, with food plots, and and that's a big part of you know, what we were just talking about is, um, you can be really, really, really good hunter, but like you may not understand the, the overall habitat. And by habitat, I mean the native plants, shrubs, trees, forbs, grasses that are there. And if you don't know that, then you may only ever see deer that are capping at 180 inches or even 140. And you're like, well, these are the best deer in the neighborhood. Yeah. But you could have so much more if the habitat is fixed and improved to where there is more year-round food. And so um, with you guys and us and what we're doing is going, okay, where is the bar? Where is the ceiling? Let's find it. Let's see how, because right now we know the habitat's poor and your guys on your farms and in the overall neighborhood. So let's make it really good. And then in the process of that, you guys are going, well, in the meantime, of making the habitat really good. We're going to lay this out with food plots in a way that when the deer are there, we can still kill them. Right, exactly. And, and you know, there's a lot of really good hunters out there that miss the, the habitat enhancement. And there's a lot of guys out there that are pretty good at habitat that may not have the tools or the knowledge on how to kill them consistently. Sure. And so we've kind of got a cool thing going where I feel like both of us are at the top of our game when it comes to what what our goals are and, and it's it seems to be working. So far it is. You can't argue with results. That, no, you, know, you can't. And results are – you can only ignore results for so long. Uh, that's right. I mean, and as everyone knows, with hunting, it's 
there is a fair bit that has to go your way eventually, no matter yep. what you do. And we've been very fortunate that way. But you can't ignore the fact that the deer are there, which is the number one thing. And yep. and then once they're there, we're figuring out a way to get them on the ground. So those and are the two pieces that are. The, the two bucks that were over 230, they were both shot on your first day out. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, um, if you look back, the 239, which is uh, extra innings, uh, he, it was our second time hunting, but we didn't have a good win the, the previous time, and we sat over 400 yards away from him, basically getting in his neighborhood, but yeah. not putting any pressure on him. Mm-hmm. So the first time we went in where we felt like we were in the game, yeah, he, he walked and he and we killed him. Yeah. And then the same with this last 233. That was opening, you know, evening of the season. So mm. obviously you're only getting one day in there. But yeah, um, there was a lot leading up to that, as there is with any deer of that yep. magnitude, obviously. But Totally. But, yeah, I mean, it, it's been working. And that, you know, the, the less time you can spend in a set, theoretically, will be always better. So it's Absolutely. nice that it worked out well for us early on. Uh, for people that I'm not even sure we covered it on the last podcast with you, but talk a little bit about your background, like how you gain knowledge of setting up farms or laying out food plots in a certain way to to increase the odds of success. Um, and just overall, as a land manager, farm manager, where's your background in that come from? Sure. So... Um... <clears throat> I initially managed properties where I grew up um, for just people in the neighborhood, but then that led to getting a job as an outfitter out in um, East Central Ohio for uh, Wicked Ridge Outfittings, and Ben Rising was the owner of that, which that name will ring a bell to a few people, I'm sure, former yep. Drury guy. Um, and there is where it kind of came on the magnitude that I'm at now, that's where I kind of got to experience that because as an outfitter, you're in charge of normally thousands and thousands of acres because you have to manage that to um, yeah. have the right clientele. And uh, and so uh, that was kind of the setup thing. And then when you're an outfitter, unfortunately in that business, you don't get a whole heck of a lot of time to manage that uh manage the habitat we're gonna have to get on the mat over there <laughs> unfortunately we don't have our other plug so matt's sitting over there and and the blood trail of dog was all wrapped <laughs> up in the mic cord <laughs> yes. uh, but yeah well back to what i was saying unfortunately as an outfitter generally you lease the property and you don't have a whole lot of time in your hands to affect the habitat really yeah and even if you could and then you had the time uh most of the landowners aren't all about you making changes they're already leasing you the ground which is always a very walking on eggshells type relationship don't lose this lease yeah exactly so especially if there's good deer here exactly so you're not just going to go in there and be like hey by the way can i cut some of your trees can i do this normally you're trying to be as less the less impact you make to the landowner the better for you yeah so there you you know you're forced to basically learn how to a set up on deer without any food plots or food sources in a lot of the times and then b if you can put food plots in you're kind of sowing them in small areas making kind of kill plots and not making a whole lot of impact on the ground and also uh, you know hunting just regular tillable crop fields you know because deer are obviously headed for food sources so 
that was my really big awakening. Now, I mean, I hunted myself since I was 11, 12 years old, um, and it had was very fortunate to have some really good ground and access to it where I grew up. So you started as a hunter there, but really for land management side, that outfitting thing was the big turning point where I was like, that okay. Food plots were the name of the game in that. Yeah, they are. And I, I think that in the majority of outfitters, you're going to find that just because they're doing just as I said, which is they have limited ability to manipulate the habitat. Yeah. And the landowners are in charge. Now, Sometimes you can maybe go to them and figure out different strategies and things to pitch some of those things to them. Like, hey, could we burn maybe this or do something like that? But ultimately, when you have a lease, you, you know, and you have a bunch of leases, it's not your only lease. You're just trying to keep the relationship as positive as you can possibly do it. Because like you said, don't lose it. Keep it in the game so that you have access to it the following year. Yeah. So yeah. Putting in food plots so. You're basically focused on laying out a food plot in a way that if a client's in a stand and a deer shows up, it's going to walk within range so he at least gets an encounter that's a positive encounter, not 200 yards out. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, there's plenty that goes into that, but it's a numbers game as an outfitter. You you know, anyone that doesn't come in and kill is automatically basically a mad client. You know, so yeah, yeah. you know, so you're you're forced to just move people around and kind of hunt places that you maybe wouldn't normally hunt, but also just getting guys on deer is a unique experience and it requires a lot of trail camera monitoring and then listening to what they're seeing and then making move movements and adjustments accordingly. Gotcha. All right, so here's a question. So there's a little bit about your background. Let's let's dive into some of these things that you use in the properties you manage to consistently harvest deer. Sure. All right. So I want you to kind of, and you don't have to rank them out, one, two, three, four, but I'm going to say rank out. Now we're on a private piece of ground as a landowner, and you're going, okay, I need to, we're targeting this deer. Prioritize what you think would be, you know, how are you going to do this? Is is food plots the most important? Native cover or native vegetation, some sort of cover, um, grains. What do you like? Okay, to make this happen, this is what I want to focus on per, first. Sure. So basically we're saying we've got a sighting and or a picture or evidence that the deer we want to kill is there. Yeah. Um, the first thing I'm going to do is kind of surround that area with trail cameras because I want as much information on the deer as I can possibly get. If I can get them, you know, exiting or feeding in a couple different areas, yep. some people might look at that as a negative. They want them coming to one area so you can kill them. I look at it as a positive because you can really easily and quickly narrow down that deer's core area, Yep. especially in the early season. Then for me, uh, if you could... So fig- I, I want to say you, you found that deer and he's on camera. What are you trying to locate first? in that i would say the first thing i try to do is guesstimate where that deer is spending the majority of his time in the bedroom okay just because like if he's bedding now deer i think people have a misconception that deer bed in the same area all the time they that is not even close to factual you know yeah. they'll bed i think pure, the people that, that that assume that are the people in that hunt landscapes where quality cover is so limited that the deer is forced to bed in that same little area sure most of the time yes for the rest of the world 
we're like, I don't know where he's been. Yeah. He's here. He's here sometimes, but other times he's gone for a few days. Exactly, and I mean the the good news about locating a prime bedding area, or at least, and when I say area, that could be a big area. It could be no, he's right there, or but just in a general vicinity of where he's living. Then you can start to adjust your hunting strategies for around that as to where, okay, he's here. Now I'm going to need some different wind directions. And that's when I go in and usually, fortunately for us, we've worked for a long time on a lot of the current properties. We have the food plots already installed, so it just becomes a maintenance situation. If there's not food plots around that area, chances are we'll put in one or we may leave crops stand in a certain area or we'll go in and intercede inside, you know, the rows of a existing grain field which is exactly what we did this year with that 233 we had um he was using a couple different locations to the north side happened to be a soybean field fortunately for us it was a wet area and so the beans um the leaves on the beans stayed green longer than anywhere else in the field so he was Ah. he was just pinched but we also had gone in there and broadcast you know food plot seed within the rows interceding and so it was so a fairly attractive crop area. Te- technique. Yeah, exactly. And and to basically we had the best of both worlds in that spot. Now we had never previously had a food plot there, um, mainly because it gets extremely wet, as I just explained. Well, it was a dry year, drier year this year, um, so the area stayed dry enough to install a food plot. But it's just so wet down in that spot, you know, down in that little lowland. Like I said, the leaves stayed green on the beans, and it was just causing a major attractant early in the season. Yeah, yeah. So we were fortunate. Um, Here's a question end. for you. Out of all the, the the big deer that you guys have been on, you and Greg, over the last, you know, you've worked for Greg for several years now. So let's just say over the last five years, and all the, the big deer you guys, you've shot, Greg shot, your Greg's son has shot. How many of those deer do you think you had pegged where you could say, you knew that deer was bedding in a 50-yard circle. Oh, next to zero. Yeah. Um, that extra innings deer, I feel like, was really, really close to being somewhat like that. Yeah. For whatever reason, you know, they have different personalities. That deer was extreme homebody-like, almost like nothing I've ever seen before. I yeah. mean, I felt like I was getting so many pictures of him, or we were getting so many pictures of him that – I could have almost put my finger on the map. I'm like, man, he's right here somewhere. Yeah. And the evidence was proven when we went in to hunt him. There he was. I mean, and yeah. we were just waiting for the correct weather. But that deer, definitely. Mm. Any of the other ones, I mean, you're going by, you're playing a numbers game. Yeah. So, you know, if chances are, if you're getting pictures of a deer multiple times in one location, chances are he's there quite a bit. Um, you know, trail cameras only monitor so much stuff. So, uh, like I said, he's they're there quite often. So, I'm going by, I get this deer in this area quite a bit, especially during the rut time. This is a good spot, you know, to be in because our chances of running into him are fairly high. Yeah. Um, to put my finger on him within a 50-yard circle, I think that's pretty naive. I mean, I've, I've seen deer get on a doe and take a – two-mile run and early in the morning just push her and then you know they're gonna bed down now odds are they will eventually circle back and end up 
at some point in time back in that area because you just seems like you get pictures of a deer once you get him. You get him periodically throughout the season I think in that same spot. One thing that I guess I set you up for that question or that answer is that you guys seem to have bedding areas around food plots, not as like, okay, we've created this half acre completely hinge cut area there. And you expect all the deer that are using that food plot on a regular basis to pile into that half acre, which is untrue. You wouldn't want your deer to do that. Right. So, like, you guys have got really pretty good, you know, sporadic old field with shrubs and then cutting in your timber and then really dense cover in your timber in multiple areas in a general vicinity around a food plot to where it's like, okay, a lot of the deer are around here and there's pretty good bedding around this food plot. And so in the evening, this is kind of the first place they all want to come. So, you know, play it by the numbers. If the deer is in this general area, he's probably going to show up. But we've got bedding close enough that he doesn't have to walk very far to get here. Yeah, definitely. I would say, you know, you hit it right on the head, which is creating multiple bedding thickets near or in and around your food sources that you want to kill your deer over. Uh, You can't – there's many stages to the game. You've got to have great food. You've got to have great cover. You've got to have water and, you, you know, all of that. So when what we do a lot of is once we have an established food plot that's in great shape, and I'm not trying to give it a one, two, three step, but it's just turned out that as most people out there, food plots came first. Like that was the yeah. initial thing. Yeah. Like if I'm a hunter, I've got to have food plots. Yeah. So, you know, we had food plots, and then we're like, okay, we want to kind of control where these deer are bedding as Mm -hmm. best we can. So, you know, you go in, you make multiple bedding thickets around your food source to encourage deer to bed closer by, and then obviously that encourages daylight movement and all that. Um, So it's a huge part of it, and, you know, we're... we're Well, I I think it's easier to to establish... It's easier to establish cover in a lot of different landscapes, whether it be this slope, that slope, uh, lowland, upland, glade. You can do various things to create dense cover. But food plots, really, you're looking for flat areas that you can access correctly. Um, You don't have to drive through two food plots to get to the third food plot. So you can't just put a food plot anywhere. But you can do pretty good bedding almost anywhere. Now, it may take a little longer if you're taking a wide-open field and try to turn that into bedding. But if it's timbered, you can put put bedding almost anywhere you want with just a little bit of chainsaw work. Yeah, definitely. And, I mean, you know, I've heard it. If I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times. Pick the tree you want to hunt out of. And then establish the food plot in that area and then go on and branch out and establish bedding thickets because the access is basically dictating the rest of it. So yeah. you're basically saying, hey, I can, I know that if I utilize this great access that I can actually harvest deer out of this area. Yep. Now, how do we improve this so that we make it, you know, you just take that next step and make it that much better and that much more attractive Um, And that's, you know, initially you're like, the thing that all hunters think right off the top of their mind is I got to have more food here. I got to have something for them to eat because deer are attracted to food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just 
barely scratching the surface. And I think really that's takes. one thing that I enjoy uh, with working with you guys is that, uh, for example, if I was to come and hunt with you guys and you sent me to food plot A, B, C, D, X, Y, Z, I would feel like there's a really good chance, no matter what food plot, that if the big deer that's in this area comes in, I'm going to get a shot at him. Right. And I think that's where a lot of people, if they think about, and even listeners right now, think about your food plots. You probably have a favorite one, and you probably have the gar hole. Yep. That, and, and, and the gar hole is the one that probably is there because either the wind's not right, or the wind swirls there, or you can't get good uh, growth out of your food plot, or... Yeah. It's all nighttime activity because you didn't spend time doing edge feathering or doing bedding thickets in close correlation with that food plot. And and you guys have gone through and really tried to maximize each food plot to where it's it's kind of like, I think, from hearing it and, and discussing it with you guys, is that if there is a deer in this part of the farm, that's a food plot to kill him in. Or that's the bedding area to go and hunt and and, and kill him. Like, it's more about what what's our target buck and what part of the farm is he in, and then we're going to go to the, the few areas that we've set up to, to get him. 100%. Exactly. And it's just go – that's a very unique thing. Like, yeah. And it takes a long time to establish your farm in that manner. Yeah. But right now, as it sits, like, we know that if we can get a deer's picture, just as you said, in this location, we're going to hunt him here, here, and here. Mm-hmm. Now we might have to make an adjustment and move and do something yep. we're not a hundred percent comfortable with to yep. get him on the ground, but we're going to have an initial plan to, and it, yep. and it's a pretty darn good one every single time, you know. And that's a that's a place of hunting strategy and land management that a few people really get to to that point of. I think a lot of people hunt food plots because, oh, I want to go look at that beautiful food plot. I planted brassicas in that one versus clover. And they're like, well, though, you know, I, I just want to hunt that part of the farm. Yep. Hoping that something shows up when, when, you, when you've done the work and you've got the farm set up to where it's like, you know, I know what deer. I've ran the trail cameras. I know what deer are in each region. And when... That deer, that deer I've identified as a target deer. It's one I want to shoot. Okay, now I got to go. He's in this region. I'm going to go to these three places. And, and I, it, that's something that I wish more and more people got to experience because that's a fun way of hunting a farm. Oh, 100%. And, I mean, all of that is obviously based off being diverse within your food sources. You know, yep. like in my perfect world, in my mind, I would love to have grain and green and then a diverse green field yeah. that gives a deer so they don't have to make the choice to hunt or to feed on beans tonight which sends them to the north yeah instead of to the south where you are yeah like in my ideal mind i would have it set up so that every field would be grain and a diverse green field and it would they would all look very similar so that um because they're similar, you don't have to play that. I'm going to hunt grain or green. I'm going to hunt turnips or clover. I, yep. I don't want. I don't want the. I don't want to make that decision when it comes time in the fall. Yeah. I want to know that in every location that we have an opportunity to harvest that deer, we have everything that they need right there. So yep. that way, when it comes time to do it, I just look. 
you know, you just simply go, check the wind, and the wind dictates where you go, and you go and hunt there now. Yep. A camera, trail camera could also make that decision for you, yep. but theoretically that would be, you know, the ideal way to have your place set up. Yep, totally. So let's talk uh, some, of the, or some of your tips and tricks. One thing that you guys do that I think – uh, a lot of people have failed at or ha- don't get maximum um, potential out of it is a way to diversify your green fields. Let's say you've got standing grain or you just have perennial clover and you're like, I would really like some sort of fall mix within this area. And by that, I'm, I'm speaking brassicas or... or uh, uh, mainly brassicas or cereal grains if you want. But I think a lot of people would say, I want brassica. So what are some of the tips and tricks you do um, to make this happen? Sure. So if you've got a, call it a, you know, a perennial clover plot established, mm-hmm. um, one of the main things we do is go in and drill a fall blend into that perennial um, clover. And Generally, I like to use a tall growing brassica because the clover has a tendency, you know, to choke out some of the um, smaller growing, less quick growing plants. So I like to use a tall brassica, drill it in, um, give it a week or two or several weeks, depending on how long it takes for it to pop. And then once I see it start to grow, I'll hit it with a topical foliar fertilizer to give it the next jump which then, you know, basically shoots it up above the clover, and then you're going to get decent growth out of it. The number one problem I hear when people ask me about this and they try it themselves is that if you don't hit it with that foliar or add some sort of fertilizer, I think foliar is best for that specific circumstance, but if you don't hit it with anything, the clover just kind of chokes it out. You never really see it get that tall. I think, uh, so do you do any kind of, what's the site prep look like to, to get that? Do you do any mowing or anything like that? Yeah, definitely. So usually the way it works so we're down here we're late july early okay. august for a fall planting of a fall mm-hmm. food plot and uh so there will i'll usually try to time it with either with the last mowing of the clover plot you know okay. I'll, I'll mow it and i'll mow it maybe if i can you know get a rain which i'm usually trying to schedule my uh planting around yeah i'll mow it kind of short because the rain's coming and then i'll go through and drill it and that's basically all you need to do is but you know, the key tool there is no-till drill, obviously, yeah, and it's uh, a huge uh, factor. For sure. So but you're going to do mowing, then you're going to drill your brassicas in, and um, as a tall-growing brassica, so it starts to germinate. And I think one of the reasons why a foliar application, an assumption of mine, it's not scientific, it's just an assumption, um, would be that if you – let's say two or a month before you broadcast a pelletized fertilizer is that those roots of the clovers much more established than this brassica. Yes. 100%. So that's what's going to be taken up the, so you're basically giving a booster shot to where that, fo- where, the, <laughs> where the, th- the, the plant that's got all the roots already established. So it can just outcompete those brassicas again. So you're going to let that start to grow and hit, hit it with a foliar application over an an area where you've already clipped the clover, sure. so it should give that. Hopefully, those brassicas capture a lot of that nutrients from that foliar fertilizer and are allowed to shoot up over the over the clover. So, what's a realistic like when you guys you do that successfully and you climb up in your stand or your blind in October? What's that area look like? 
I mean, you can you really shouldn't be able to tell that it was ever an established clover plot. I mean, if you look at any of our videos or anything you look out, it's they're usually a a bunch of very robust plants. I mean, they're usually pretty tall and broad-leafed and um, very green. So you generally can't even really tell that the clover's there, hardly. Wow. Uh, but, like, the great part about brassicas is that they really react to nitrogen, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, and clover really doesn't. So, yeah. like, when you when you spray a foliar on that's high in nitrogen, the brassicas, the ones are going to benefit from that. The clover yeah. is really... You know, it will. It's nice yeah. to have a foliar on your clover. And I found that if you would just go through and not plant brassicas and hit that clover with a foliar, mm -hmm. in my experience, and maybe other people have had different experience, but I find that the deer kind of pick that side to eat first after it's been fertilized, you know, once yep. it starts to come up. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a great technique. It's worked wonders for us, and, and you really cannot tell. You would never know the clover's there until it comes into, you know, late December where a lot of guys' brassica plots look like a dirt hole in the ground. Yeah, Ours just looks like it's a carpet of clover. You know, you planted <laughs> a clover cloth. So it's it's a really good tool. I wish more people would utilize it. It's just it involves – a few things that are a little abnormal, one being a no-till and two fuller fertilizer, which aren't super popular things that are available to everybody. But it's it's definitely a fantastic strategy. Mm, I love it. What about um, you guys use a tool that um, I've heard some very like, um, oh, some people love it. Some people say it doesn't work. Some people advise against it. But mowing mowing strips or mowing trails in taller vegetation areas or CRP, even crop fields. Yeah, definitely. So, well, for starters, a lot of that comes from creating soft edge through, you know, edge feathering or mm -hmm. um, some sort of, you know, Sometimes it's CRP. Or just letting the first 20 yards grow up. Exactly, and not planting. So that that's a big part of it. And then... Um, Even the buffer strips of CRP. Exactly. They work great. And it, and then another, you know, aspect of it is kind of finding out where the deer like to enter your food plots um, through trail cameras. And then all that comes down to is the plain and simple rule of thumb that deer are generally lazy. Yeah. Um, and they will choose to walk the path of least resistance most often. As long as, I think that's all true, as long as it's in an area of already naturally occurring travel. Right. I think that's where some people say, no, it doesn't work. Yeah. Is you're trying to put it, you're trying to make them change their travel by 100 yards or even 50 yards when they really wanted to come out of just that corner. Yes. And like you said, that's, or like you just hit on, 100%. You can't take a strip and mow it, you know, 150 yards out in your food plot where deer are not accessing it and try to say, oh, they're going to walk down that. Um, but definitely it's a strategy and it's a great one and it's, and it's paid off big for us. Um, just to figure out where the deer are accessing your food plot and your stand location and try to make it just a little bit easier for them to cross within archery range is basically the name of the game. Yeah. Um, but... It works. I mean, you can see in our last hunt of the year, well, shouldn't be the second last, Greg's Wisconsin deer, I had driven my truck in to check the trail cameras of that, and on that hunt, right on the video, 
the deer is walking up my tire tracks because we had, you know, two and a half what, feet of snow. What deer was this again? Greg's oh, last oh, Wisconsin that's right. deer. And we yeah. had two, two and a half feet of snow, and I walked in. And what are they doing? They're literally walking up my tire tracks. Yeah. And so it, that right there, that's not a mowed path. That's just the path of least resistance. <laughs> yes, and they walked directly up it. So, so the, the, the deer you guys shot in, Greg shot in Iowa. Mode trail, right? Yeah, hundred percent. Now, the tr- the trail wasn't mowed till on. I mean, within a, I want to say seven or eight days prior to us hunting, but we knew where he was roughly wanting to enter that mm-hmm. food plot. Now, he didn't use that exact trail every single night. He would enter, you know, to the south or come to the east just a little ways or whatever. So what we did is take the main trail that he entered most often mowed off that and then mowed that edge because it's good to have edge mowings anyway because mm-hmm. once you mow the edge of a you know the edge of a field along a timber line the deer will naturally walk that and make scrapes underneath it so it's a great strategy to have it mowed yeah. and so we just mowed that whole edge in hopes that okay if he doesn't enter exactly where we think then he'll hit it further down and hit that mode path, which ties in, and then hopefully he'll walk within. Well, fortunately for us, he literally entered where he most often did that evening and then walked the path <laughs> right down Main Street, which was a very gratifying experience. Oh, totally. Yeah. It's one thing to grow them. It's another thing to manipulate travel patterns and, and to where you can just pull it all into where you almost feel like you've created this – you helped him get this big, yep. and now you've made it to where he can you, you walk right by the stand. Yes. Yeah. And I will say that that evening it was very interesting because a couple other deer entered the plot exactly where that deer did and ignored the mode path and headed due, you know, west of us. Well, they were heading north but west of the stand and did not follow the mode path. So... It's not like a 100% guarantee if you mow a path, the deer will walk 20 yards away. A 233 will walk 20 yards away from you, and you'll shoot it. But it's definitely stacking the odds in your favor, and how can you can't afford not to try it, you know. Yep, for sure. Um, what about mock scrapes? I notice you guys use a lot of mock scrapes. How? What percentage of your food plots that you guys hunt have mock scrapes in them a hundred percent of our food plots (laughs) (laughs) so anytime we plant a food plot we're going to put what we use and what we found works great is in iowa there's a ton of old cedar post fences and uh the deer will come if the fencing's down and the barbed wire's falling down over time, degraded. They will come and they'll rub on those. Well, we've just mm-hmm. over the years started plucking them because they're previously used rub posts, and yep. installed them in our food plots. And then, you know, we just drill a hole in them, shove branches through the hole, and run a screw there and create a mock scrape. And it, literally every single one of our food plots that we have has one. Um, How far from your stand or blind? Within shooting distance, it varies just depending on the setup. Yeah. Like, I don't like to put, like, let's say you've got, we always use hourglass shapes. I know it gets redundant, but, like, it's a great shape for a food plot. But if you have that hourglass shape, I like to give them some room for them to come through the pinch of the hourglass, and then they kind of just kind of naturally run into that mock scrape. Yeah. 
Um, I wouldn't put it like right there because it seems like they're already pinched, so that creates nervousness. They want to get through there. Yeah. Um, and then you just stick a pole in their way, and it seems to bother them, you know. Mm-hmm. So, um, but always, I always put them within shooting range, um, just in case. There again, we have had a ton of deer come and utilize those to the point where we could have executed a shot and done it. Um, do all of them do it? Definitely not. But it's another tool, and it's very simple, and involves very little work to include in your setup. And it's just one of those things, like a mode path or an access trail, a lazy trail, whatever you want to call it, um, that you can include that's just going to increase your odds. Yeah. Mm. So it's it's a post that they can rub on. Yeah. And so there's that scent that they can leave, and then also there's licking branches and a scrape as well. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a million different ways you can build them. I like to use an all-wood, like whether that's a post or a tree or whatever. It seems like yeah. when you drive a T-post in the ground, um, it works great for scrapes, but they won't rub on it. Yeah. And it, it's not that you need them to make, you know, a scrape is good enough, but it's just kind of more natural in my How opinion. many of your mock scrapes get rubbed on in a year? Oh, a- anyone. If we put it out and it's a, a cedar pole, an old fence post that's been previously rubbed, they get hit every single year. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's it, without – and I get – I love them for trail cam photos as well. I mean, it's a signpost. You might get it – you might not get the deer you're after in daylight, but at some point in time he's going to stop there. Yeah. Wow. Um, you mentioned food plot designs, and I, I, I enjoy this about your guys' farms, but talk to me. You said the hourglass shape. And I think immediately we all picture the true hourglass shape where you've got it kind of neck down um, right there in the center, all perfect, and then two big lobes on both ends sure. of that bottleneck. There's many different forms by the by how to create a bottleneck within a food plot. Um, I think of the food plot you guys shot uh, extra innings out of. That's a classic bottleneck food plot. But go through some of those um, uh, those designs as well as where your stand or blind sits within that food plot. Sure. Sure. Um, well, the number one thing that I am trying to accomplish is if you have grain and green in a setup, you want to have your stand location somewhere between the grain and the green. Deer like their need to browse will just you know their instinct to browse and not eat all grain or all green will just get them killed so often it's it's almost comical like they'll come out in the green field and you're like i know that you want to come over here eventually you're not going to sit there and eat beans for the next four hours yeah you know they just they eat and they get a little tired of it just like we do you know, you're not going to eat just straight salad all night long. You know what I mean? You're going to be like, yeah. I need to get something else. And, and they'll move through it. So whatever shape you create or however you create that is, you know, is dictated by the habitat and the land. But I would definitely advise, like, if you've got grain green, you want to be somewhere in between those two so that when they go to make that transfer, you're within range. Do you do anything on the edge of the food plot to try to, inc- like, uh, instead of shortcutting the corner – and walking through the timber or walking through the the CRP, do you do anything to try to encourage them to walk through that bottleneck or that lane or that roadway? 
Sure, definitely. And we talked about this, touched on this just a little bit ago with the mowing of paths, but like the edge feathering thing yep. where you can go and if you've got a good idea where deer are entering that food plot, um, you can definitely lay trees down or shrubs along the edges to make sure that once they enter it, they really don't leave it till they funnel past your setup. Yeah. It's a great strategy. Um, it should be used by everyone. I've I've taken a fully rectangular shaped food plot where there is no really pinch points or anything and just use, you know, your, your advice on edge feathering and just drop trees into the plot and yeah. then set up straight across from it so that when they try to go from one side to the other, they see the deadfall and loop right in front of you and, you know, enter the death alley there. Yeah. So you create all that stuff. You can create it in many different ways, but it's a deadly tactic. You, in everyone that has a food plot, ideally you'd have some sort of setup in that manner where they would funnel past you or around you or um, around an inside corner or something like that. Yeah. Because really that's all an inside. You know, when we grew up hunting, before anybody put in food plots, the inside corner of a tillable field or an agricultural field was like your number one go-to, right? Yeah. You could see the deer. Well, all that really is is a pinch point. You're yeah. sitting there. They're entering on the inside corner. There's two edges of timber, and that's they're just comfortable doing that. So it's taking that philosophy and just, you know, expanding it into your kill food plot areas. Yeah. Um, one thing that you've mentioned before, but – in that setup, those designs, your access, how are you accessing those? Like, do you find yourself in the course of the fall, how many times or what percentage do you find yourself walking to a stand or a blind without stepping foot in the food plot? <laughs> Hopefully always. Like, yeah. I don't, in the ideal world, we would never do that. Yeah. And, and, and one thing to stay away from, if you're a whitetail person, I found is always comments and never comments. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no like doubt. If you make them, someone inevitably is going to be like, that's stupid. You shouldn't have said that. But yeah, uh, the, that's not true because I've seen it. <laughs> in yeah. the ideal world, I would never walk across a food plot to get to my setup. That would be ideal. I would love to see it that like in 99.9% .9 of our setups, I know beyond – you know, I basically know that there will not be a deer between where I park the truck and we walk to the blind. Yep. There could be a very, very unique situation where one would lay down. It's not 100%, but odds are very, very high that there will not be any in the setups that we currently have. Yeah. Um, so I, to walk across a food plot is to inevitably, at some point in time, shoot yourself in the foot because you're wanting to feed the deer there. The deer mm -hmm. are coming to eat. They'll walk across and either cut your tracks or when it comes time to leave your setup, there will inevitably be deer in your food plot and you're going to have to get out and walk across at the back and spook them to high hell. So it's yeah. just, it's, it's a recipe for failure now. Okay, so here's a question for you. When you guys are hunting and you have deer in a food plot, regardless of the food plot, let's play this game. How do you get out of your stand without blowing the field? Or, or what do you do in the course of it gets dark? What's the next step? So the key is to spook only one deer. <laughs> Honestly, though, you want to – ideally, you want to get one moving so that they bust the herd. So, like, if you draw attention to yourself with 
like all 30 deer are looking up at you when you're leaving, yeah. it's generally horrible because when they do spook, they all know why they're spooking. Like they're alerting to danger, all of them, and they're moving. So yeah. a lot of what we'll do is we'll flash a flashlight at one deer close by yeah. and just flash it and get her moving or him. And then once once they bust then the other deer are kind of like just reacting to that one. Yeah, they're like, I don't know why Joe's running, but, but let's do it. We're out. Yeah. Definitely getting out of here. Um, so, like, to just pack up your stuff out of a tree stand, if you're in a tree stand, and crawl down and just blatantly draw attention to yourself with all the deer that are standing in mm-hmm. your food source, is I would call that a bad idea. Yeah. If you could get the attention of one and send her and then – or her, or you know, whichever deer's close – um, that would be what we try to accomplish. Um, we do have some setups where I am perfectly confident in saying we could crawl straight down because um, they're so well designed that, like, we can crawl down and I'm not worried about making a sound or a noise or spooking any of the deer. Now, that would be unique where we're in, like, a fence row where the cedar trees have grown up so tall that they make it all the way to the base of the blind. Mm-hmm. So the blind is, you know, it, that's one thing where you can kind of get out a little easier. You're completely enclosed, and then when you crawl down, if you've got a block in front of the blind, you can crawl down and be gone. Mm-hmm. Tree stand, obviously much more difficult. Mm-hmm. But to answer your question, it's just you want to alert as few as possible. You're going to scare them. I mean, they're there. They're deer. If you start yeah. rustling around, they're going to figure it out. But ideally, just get them to bust without them really know why they're running. Yeah, yeah. But mm. uh, other it's than like that, there's a no whole bunch of people at a, in a mall and all of a sudden somebody's running yelling. You're all like, I don't know why he's running yelling, but I'm going to follow him. Definitely. Because yeah. you'd be dumb not to. for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know what he knows, <laughs> but I'm going to avoid it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So how many in those, um, you said cedars growing up, any other tips on like how to brush in your blind? Like, have you guys, that that takes a while for the cedars to grow up. Have you done anything to try to create that in a in a quick instant that has worked well? Sure. So going off what you said, the first thing that I would say is that if you're going to move a blind in on a deer in a kind of a scramble situation, like you've seen a deer and yeah. you're going to move a box blind in to try to get him killed in the next couple of days, mm-hmm. I would definitely not put anything underneath the blind. I would make sure that they can see through the bottom of it. Okay. It seems to me, and it may be a theory, I might be a mile off, but it seems to me when you put like a, a call it a black matting or something over there where you're going to hide the bottom, that they yeah. that makes them extremely nervous because it's a barrier and they can't see past it and they don't understand. Like I've seen them walk around that. I've tried it in the past and I've seen them walk around the blind and be like, whoa, it's just confusing because there's a big black, and they can't see behind it, so they got to go take a look, you know? Yeah. Whereas if they can see through the bottom of the blind and there's no danger there, they seem a ton more comfortable really? to me. Um, but uh, as far as brushing them in... Uh, like, use, say you're setting up a blind in yeah. July or, or yeah. May. We, I mean, ideally we like to have our setup so our access is covered by native grasses or some sort of tall barrier. I have yeah. planted some pro- plot screens, and what I do when I plant a sp- plot screen is normally I seed in a native grass mix, yeah. and then I cover it with a plot screen. So the, sc- the screen will come up, and you'll have that, but then in the future, the native grass barrier yeah. will come up and, and form that. Um, 
if we're going to move something, I generally don't do a whole lot of brushing on the bottom side of a blind if it's elevated. Uh, and still, it's just that's the name of that game is getting that blind in there in plenty of time so that they can use to, get used to it. Yeah. They only need to see it I once. I meant for your access. So let's just say, like, brushing it in so, you know, you can walk in and climb up in the sand and climb out without being fully alerted. Have you guys done anything that you felt is successful in that? Sure, but I think it goes gets included in kind of the edge feathering again. Gotcha. You know, okay. like, you drop it down so that you're creating an edge, but you're going to use it as well to get no cover to enter your stand. No doubt. Well, man, that that all sounds like even I've I've heard you just in this podcast. I've heard some things that I'm like, oh, I've never heard that strategy strategy before. So hopefully, there's some people out there that have gained some tips and tricks. And um, man, I, I think you guys certainly have the record to prove it. And uh, I, I'm excited to see how it moving forward, how your guys' uh, success continues to go. And and uh, uh, hopefully, there's some guys that use these little tips and tricks and can have some level of that same success yes well the work starts now and there's no time like the one thing one thing that we talked about pre-podcast that we forgot to mention is um the 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 point of now is the time to do it not next month or next year yeah i heard a long time ago that to really be great at something pick out one thing and do it every day that makes you better now I think that was a great strategy for hunting because most of us, hunting is a hobby, right? Yep. Yep. So you also have to do something that pays the bills, that takes up a lot of your time, marriage, kids, whatever the case may be. Um, But if you picked out one thing and did it something every day to improve your hunting, I think by the end of the year you'd find out that you've made some pretty serious strides. And I think a lot of people do the whole tomorrow, next week. Yeah. If you've got something something that you want to improve on your property, get going. Get the information, figure out what needs to happen, and get started now because now is the time where there's no turkey season in, in going on. Yeah. There's no deer. Deer season's out everywhere. So um, take the time to get out. The weather's turning nice, and get started on, on improving your stuff because and, – And maybe sacrifice. I mean, that's something that I think um, – a lot of people have dealt with and fallen guilty of is like you have a lot of hobbies you've got golf and fishing and hunting and land management and whatever else and you know it's like oh it's starting to warm up i'm going to go play a few rounds of golf over the next couple weekends it's like if you just took two years and kind of slowed down the golf game and focus on the habitat go create the bedding thickets go do the edge feathering you'd be like okay i sacrificed a little bit on those hobbies but for the long haul now, I'm going to have much better hunting because I did that. Rather than trying to juggle all these different hobbies and go, oh, I'm really never getting anywhere with any of them. That's right. Jack of all, master of none, as they say. Yeah. But And you can go golfing. I, I can appreciate all that stuff. But then <clears throat> I don't want to hear about it on November 5th when you're sitting there you know, having a tough year. And it's like, well, what were you doing in July? Mm-hmm. And it was when I was running chainsaw, you were golfing. Remember that? That's right. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> no, but I mean, I think it's. I think a lot of people do that. You do, you don't you don't take it to task, and that's a problem. I mean, it's just not. You're never going to accomplish what you want to accomplish unless you put your head down and go to work. That's right. Well, on that note, we'll sign off, and hopefully, uh, you're on you're on Instagram, right? 
Mm-hmm. It's just my name, KCJ Morgan, I think. There you Pretty go. sure that's what it is. Yeah, you, you're very active on, <laughs> on Instagram, I bet. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, Casey, thanks for coming on once again, man. It's been too long. Hopefully it won't be as long next time. And Guys, uh, uh, thanks for joining us once again, and we'll catch you next week. Thanks a lot, yeah. man.